Section 13 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 3, Chapter 12. Alice Paul in Prison. Great passions, when they run through a whole population, inevitably find a great spokesman. A people cannot remain dumb which is moved by profound impulses of conviction, and when spokesmen and leaders are found, effective concert of action seems to follow as naturally. Men spring together for common action under a common impulse which has taken hold upon their very natures, and governments presently find that they have those to reckon with who know not only what they want, but also the most effective means of making governments uncomfortable until they get it. Governments find themselves, in short, in the presence of agitation, of systematic movements of opinion, which do not merely flare up in spasmodic flames and then die down again, but burn with an accumulating ardor which can be checked and extinguished only by removing the grievances and abolishing the unacceptable institutions which are its fuel. Casual discontent can be allayed, but agitation fixed upon conviction cannot be. To fight it is merely to augment its force. It burns irrepressibly in every public assembly, quiet it there and it gathers head at street corners, drive it thence and it smoulders in private dwellings, in social gatherings, in every covert of talk, only to break forth more violently than ever because denied vent and air. It must be reckoned with. Governments have been very resourceful in parrying agitation, in diverting it, in seeming to yield to it and then cheating it of its objects, in tiring it out or evading it, but the end, whether it comes soon or late, is quite certain to be always the same. Constitutional Government in the United States, Woodrow Wilson, Ph.D., LL.D., President of Princeton University. The special session of the 65th Congress, known as the War Congress, adjourned in October 1917, having passed every measure recommended as a war measure by the President. In addition, it found time to protect by law migratory birds, to appropriate $47 million for deepening rivers and harbors, and to establish more federal judgeships. No honest person would say that lack of time and pressure of war legislation had prevented its consideration of the suffrage measure. If one hundredth part of the time consumed by its members in spreading the wings of the overworked eagle, and in uttering to bored ears home-made patriotic verse, had been spent in considering the liberty of women, this important legislation could have been dealt with. Week after week, Congress met only for three days, and then often merely for prayer and a few hours of purposeless talking. We had asked for liberty, and had got a suffrage committee appointed in the House to consider the pros and cons of suffrage, and a favorable report in the Senate from the Committee on Woman Suffrage, nothing more. On the very day and hour of the adjournment of the special session of the War Congress, Alice Paul led eleven women to the White House gates to protest against the administration's allowing its lawmakers to go home without action on the suffrage amendment. Two days later, Alice Paul and her colleagues were put on trial. Many times during previous trials, I had heard the district attorney for the government shake his finger at Miss Paul and say, We'll get you yet. Just wait. And when we do, we'll give you a year. It was reported from very authentic sources that Attorney General Gregory had, earlier in the agitation, seriously considered arresting Miss Paul for the administration on the charge of conspiracy to break the law. We were told this plan was abandoned because, as one of the Attorney General's staff put it, no jury would convict her. However, here she was in their hands, 
in the courtroom. Proceedings opened with the customary formality. The eleven prisoners sat silently at the bar, reading their morning papers or a book, or enjoying a moment of luxurious idleness, oblivious of the comical movements of a perturbed court. Nothing in the world so baffles the pompous dignity of a court as non-resistant defendants. The judge cleared his throat, and the attendants made meaningless gestures. Will the prisoners stand up and be sworn? They will not. Will they question witnesses? They will not. Will they speak in their own behalf? The slender, quiet-voiced Quaker girl arose from her seat. The crowded courtroom pressed forward breathlessly. She said calmly and with unconcern, We do not wish to make any plea before this court. We do not consider ourselves subject to this court, since as an unenfranchised class we have nothing to do with the making of the laws which have put us in this position. What a disconcerting attitude to take! Miss Paul sat down as quietly and unexpectedly as she had arisen. The judge moved uneasily in his chair. The gentle way in which it was said was disarming. Would the judge hold him in contempt? He had not time to think. His part of the comedy he had expected to run smoothly, and here was this defiant little woman calmly stating that we were not subject to the court and that we would therefore have nothing to do with the proceedings. The murmurs had grown to a babble of conversation. A sharp rap of the gavel restored order and permitted Judge Maloney to say, Unfortunately, I am here to support the laws that are made by Congress, and, of course, I am bound by those laws. And you are bound by them as long as you live in this country, notwithstanding the fact that you do not recognize the law. Everybody strained his ears for the sentence. The administration had threatened to get the leader. Would they dare? Another pause. I shall suspend sentence for the time being, came solemnly from the judge. Was it that they did not dare confine Miss Paul? Were they beginning actually to perceive the real strength of the movement and the protest that would be aroused if she were imprisoned? Again, we thought perhaps this marked the end of the jailing of women. But though the pickets were released on suspended sentences, there was no indication of any purpose on the part of the administration of acting on the amendment. Two groups, some of those on suspended sentence, others first offenders, again marched to the White House gates. The following motto, The time has come to conquer or submit. For us there can be but one choice. We have made it. A quotation from the President's Second Liberty Loan Appeal was carried by Miss Paul. Dr. Carolyn E. Spencer of Colorado carried, Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. All were brought to trial again. The trial of Miss Paul's group ran as follows. Mr. Hart, prosecuting attorney for the government. Sergeant Lee, were you on Pennsylvania Avenue near the White House Saturday afternoon? Sergeant Lee. I was. Mr. Hart. At what time? Lee. About 4.35 in the afternoon. Hart. Tell the court what you saw. Lee. A little after half past four, when the department clerks were all going home out Pennsylvania Avenue, I saw four suffragettes coming down Madison Place, cross the avenue, and continue on Pennsylvania Avenue to the gate of the White House, where they divided two on the right and two on the left side of the gate. Hart, what did you do? Lee, I made my way through the crowd that was surrounding them and told the ladies they were violating the law by standing at the gates, and wouldn't they please move on? Hart, did they move on? Lee, they did not, and they didn't answer either. Hart, what did you do then? Lee, I placed them under arrest. Hart, what did you do then? Lee, I asked the crowd to move on. Mr. Hart then arose, and summing up, said, your Honor, these women have said that they will pick it again. I ask you to impose the maximum sentence. 
Such confused legal logic was indeed droll. You ladies seem to feel that we discriminate in making arrests and in sentencing you, said the judge heavily. The result is that you force me to take the most drastic means in my power to compel you to obey the law. More legal confusion. Six months, said the judge to the first offenders, and then you will serve one month more to the others. Miss Paul's parting remark to the reporters who intercepted her on her way from the courtroom to begin her seven-month sentence was, We are being imprisoned not because we obstructed traffic, but because we pointed out to the President the fact that he was obstructing the cause of democracy at home while Americans were fighting for it abroad. I'm going to let Alice Paul tell her own story as she related it to me one day after her release. It was late afternoon when we arrived at the jail. There we found the suffragists who had preceded us locked in cells. The first thing I remember was the distress of the prisoners about the lack of fresh air. Evening was approaching. Every window was closed tight. The air in which we would be obliged to sleep was foul. There were about eighty negro and white prisoners crowded together, tier upon tier, frequently two in a cell. I went to a window and tried to open it. Instantly a group of men, prison guards, appeared picked me up bodily, threw me into a cell, and locked the door. Rose Winslow and the others were treated in the same way. Determined to preserve our health and that of the other prisoners, we began a concerted fight for fresh air. The windows were about twenty feet distant from the cells, and two sets of iron bars intervened between us and the windows, but we instituted an attack upon them as best we could. Our tin drinking cups, the electric light bulbs, every available article of meager supply in each cell, including my treasured copy of Browning's poems, which I had secretly taken in with me, was thrown through the windows. By this simultaneous attack from every cell, we succeeded in breaking one window before our supply of tiny weapons was exhausted. The fresh October air came in like an exhilarating gale. The broken window remained untouched throughout the entire stay of this group and all the later groups of suffragists. Thus was one what the regulars in jail called the first breath of air in their time. The next day we organized ourselves into a little group for the purpose of rebellion. We determined to make it impossible to keep us in jail. We determined, moreover, that as long as we were there we would keep up an unremitting fight for the rights of political prisoners. One by one, little points were conceded to quiet resistance. There was the practice of sweeping the corridors in such a way that the dust filled the cells. The prisoners would be choking to the gasping point as they sat helpless locked in the cells, while a great cloud of dust enveloped them from the tiers above and below. As soon as our tin drinking cups, which were sacrificed in our attack upon the windows, were restored to us, we instituted a campaign against the dust. Tin cup after tin cup was filled and its contents thrown out into the corridor from every cell, so that the water began to trickle down from tier to tier. The district commissioners, the board of charities, and other officials were summoned by the prison authorities. Hurried consultations were held. Nameless officials passed by in review and looked upon the dampened floor. Thereafter the corridors were dampened and the sweeping into the cells ceased. And so another reform was won. There is absolutely no privacy allowed a prisoner in a cell. You are suddenly peered at by curious strangers who look in at you all hours of the day and night, by officials, by attendants, by interested philanthropic visitors, and by prison reformers, until one's sense of privacy is so outraged that one rises in rebellion. 
We set out to secure privacy, but we did not succeed, for to allow privacy in prison is against all institutional thought and habit. Our only available weapon was our blanket, which was no sooner put in front of our bars than it was forcibly taken down by Warden Zinken. Our meals had consisted of a little almost raw salt pork, some sort of liquid, I am not sure whether it was coffee or soup bread, and occasionally molasses. How we cherished the bread and molasses. We saved it from meal to meal so as to try to distribute the nourishment over a longer period, as almost everyone was unable to eat the raw pork. Lucy Branham, who was more valiant than the rest of us, called out from her cell one day, Shut your eyes tight and close your mouth over the pork and swallow it without chewing it. Then you can do it. This heroic practice kept Miss Branham in fairly good health, but to the rest it seemed impossible, even with our eyes closed, to crunch our teeth into the raw pork. However gaily you start out in prison to keep up a rebellious protest, it is nevertheless a terribly difficult thing to do in the face of the constant cold and hunger of undernourishment. Bread and water and occasional molasses is not a diet destined to sustain rebellion long, and soon weakness overtook us. At the end of two weeks of solitary confinement, without any exercise, without going outside of our cells, some of the prisoners were released, having finished their terms, but five of us were left serving seven-month sentences and two one-month sentences. With our number thus diminished to seven, the authorities felt able to cope with us. The doors were unlocked, and we were permitted to take exercise. Rose Winslow fainted as soon as she got into the yard and was carried back to her cell. I was too weak to move from my bed. Rose and I were taken on stretchers that night to the hospital. For one brief night we occupied beds in the same ward in the hospital. Here we decided upon the hunger strike as the ultimate form of protest left us, the strongest weapon left with which to continue within the prison our battle against the administration. Miss Paul was held absolutely incommunicado in the prison hospital. No attorney, no member of her family, no friend could see her. With Miss Burns in prison also, it became imperative that I consult Miss Paul as to a matter of policy. I was peremptorily refused admission by Warden Zinken, so I decided to attempt to communicate with her from below her window. This was before we had established what in prison parlance is known as the grapevine route. The grapevine route consists of smuggling messages oral or written via a friendly guard or prisoner who has access to the outside world. Just before twilight, I hurried in a taxi to the faraway spot, temporarily abandoned the cab, and walked past the dismal cemetery which skirts the prison grounds. I had fortified myself with a diagram of the grounds, and knew which entrance to attempt in order to get to the hospital wing where Miss Paul lay. We had also ascertained her floor and room. I must first pick the right building, proceed to the proper corner, and finally select the proper window. The sympathetic chauffeur loaned me a very seedy-looking overcoat which I wrapped about me, Having deposited my hat inside the cab, I turned up the collar, drew in my chin, and began surreptitiously to circle the devious paths leading to a side entrance of the grounds. My heart was palpitating, for the authorities had threatened arrest if any suffragists were found on the prison grounds, and aside from my personal feelings, I could not at that moment abandon headquarters. Making a desperate effort to act like an experienced and trusted attendant of the prison, I roamed about and tried not to appear roaming. I successfully passed two guards and reached the desired spot, which was by good luck temporarily deserted. I succeeded in calling up loudly enough to be heard by Miss Paul, but softly enough not to be heard by the guards. I shall never forget the shock of her appearance at that window in the gathering dusk. Everything in the world seemed black-gray except her ghost-like face, so startling, so inaccessible. 
It drove everything else from my mind for an instant. But as usual, she was in complete control of herself. She began to hurl questions at me faster than I could answer. How were the convention plans progressing? Had the speakers been secured for the mass meeting? How many women had signed up to go out on the next picket line? And so on. Conditions at Occoquan are frightful, said I. We are planning to... Get out of there and move quickly, shouted the guard, who came abruptly around the corner of the building. I tried to finish my message. We're planning to habeas corpus the women out of Occoquan and have them transferred up here. Get out of there, I tell you. Damn you. By this time he was upon me. He grabbed me by the arm and began shaking me. You will be arrested if you do not get off these grounds, he continued to shake me while I shouted back, Do you approve of this plan? I was being forced along so rapidly that I was out of range of her faint voice and could not hear the answer. I pled with the guard to be allowed to go back quietly and speak a few more words with Miss Paul, but he was inflexible. Once out of the grounds, I went unnoticed to the cemetery and sat on a tombstone to wait a little while before making another attempt, hoping the guard would not expect me to come back. The lights were beginning to twinkle in the distance, and it was now almost total darkness. I consulted any watch and realized that in forty minutes Miss Paul and her comrades would again be going through the torture of forcible feeding. I waited five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes. Then I went back to the grounds again. I started through another entrance, but I had proceeded only a few paces when I was forcibly evicted. Again I returned to the cold tombstone. I believe that I never in my life felt more utterly miserable and impotent. There were times, as I have said, when we felt inordinately strong. This was one of the times when I felt that we were frail reeds in the hands of cruel and powerful oppressors. My thoughts were at first with Alice Paul, at that moment being forcibly fed by men jailers and men doctors. I remembered then the man warden who had refused the highly reasonable request to visit her, and my thoughts kept right on up the scale till I got to the man president, the pinnacle of power against us. I was indeed desolate. I walked back to the hidden taxi, hurried to headquarters, and plunged into my work, trying all night to convince myself that the sting of my wretchedness was being mitigated by activity toward a release from this state of affairs. Later we established daily communication with Miss Paul through one of the charwomen who scrubbed the hospital floors. She carried paper and pencil carefully concealed upon her. On entering Miss Paul's room, she would, with very comical stealth, first elaborately push Miss Paul's bed against the door, then crawl practically under it, and pass from this point of concealment the coveted paper and pencil. Then she would linger over the floor to the last second, imploring Miss Paul to hasten her writing. Faithfully every evening this silent, dusky messenger made her long journey after her day's work, and patiently waited while I wrote an answering note to be delivered to Miss Paul the following morning. Thus it was that in the hospital Miss Paul directed our campaign, in spite of the administration's most painstaking plans to the contrary. Miss Paul's story continues here from the point where I interrupted it. From the moment we undertook the hunger strike, a policy of unremitting intimidation began. One authority after another, high and low, in and out of prison, came to attempt to force me to break the hunger strike. You will be taken to a very unpleasant place if you don't stop this, was a favorite threat of the prison officials, as they would hint vaguely of the psychopathic ward and St. Elizabeth's, the government insane asylum. They alternately bullied and hinted. Another threat was you will be forcibly fed immediately if you don't stop. This from Dr. Gannon. There was nothing to do in the midst of these continuous threats 
with always the very unpleasant place hanging over me, and so I lay perfectly silent on my bed. After about three days of the hunger strike, a man entered my room in the hospital and denounced himself as Dr. White, the head of St. Elizabeth's. He said that he had been asked by District Commissioner Gardner to make an investigation. I later learned that he was Dr. William A. White, the eminent alienist, coming close to my bedside and addressing the attendant, who stood at a few respectful paces from him. Dr. White said, Does this case talk? Why wouldn't I talk? I answered quickly. Oh, these cases frequently will not talk, you know, he continued in explanation. Indeed, I'll talk, I said gaily, not having the faintest idea that this was an investigation of my sanity. Talking is our business, I continued. We talk to anyone on earth who is willing to listen to our suffrage speeches. Please talk, said Dr. White. Tell me about suffrage, why you have opposed the president, the whole history of your campaign, why you pick it, what you hope to accomplish by it. Just talk freely. I drew myself together, sat upright in bed, propped myself up for a discourse of some length, and began to talk. The stenographer, whom Dr. White brought with him, took down in shorthand everything that was said. I may say it was one of the best speeches I ever made. I recited the long history and struggle of the suffrage movement from its early beginning, and narrated the political theory of our activities up to the present moment, outlining the status of the suffrage amendment in Congress at that time. In short, I told him everything. He listened attentively, interrupting only occasionally to say, But has not President Wilson treated you women very badly? Whereupon I, still unaware that I was being examined, launched forth into an explanation of Mr. Wilson's political situation and the difficulties he had confronting him. I continued to explain why we felt our relief lay with him. I cited his extraordinary power, his influence over his party, his undisputed leadership in the country, always painstakingly explaining that we opposed President Wilson merely because he happened to be the president, not because he was President Wilson. Again came an interruption from Dr. White. But isn't President Wilson directly responsible for the abuses and indignities which have been heaped upon you? You are suffering now as a result of his brutality, are you not? Again I explained that it was impossible for us to know whether President Wilson was personally acquainted in any detail with the facts of our present condition, even though we knew that he had concurred in the early decision to arrest our women. Presently Dr. White took out a small light and held it up to my eyes. Suddenly it dawned upon me that he was examining me personally, that his interest in the suffrage agitation and the jail conditions did not exist, and that he was merely interested in my reactions to the agitation and to jail. Even then I was reluctant to believe that I was the subject of mental investigation, and I continued to talk. But he continued, and what I realized with a sudden shock was an attempt to discover in me symptoms of the persecution mania. How simple he had apparently thought it would be to prove that I had an obsession on the subject of President Wilson. The day following he came again, this time bringing with him the district commissioner, Mr. Gardner, to whom he asked me to repeat everything that had been said the day before. For the second time we went through the history of the suffrage movement, and again his inquiry suggested his persecution mania clue, when the narrative touched upon the president and his responsibility for the obstruction of the suffrage amendment. Dr. White would turn to his associate with the remark, Note the reaction. Then came another alienist, Dr. Hickling, attached to the psychopathic ward in the district jail, with more threats and suggestions if the hunger strike continued. Finally they departed, and I was left to wonder what would happen next. Doubtless my sense of humor helped me, but I confess I was not without fear of this mysterious place which they continued to threaten. 
It appeared clear that it was their intention either to discredit me as the leader of the agitation by casting doubt upon my sanity, or else to intimidate us into retreating from the hunger strike. After the examination by the alienists, Commissioner Gardner, with whom I had previously discussed our demand for treatment as political prisoners, made another visit. All these things you say about the prison conditions may be true, said Mr. Gardner. I am a new commissioner, and I do not know. You give an account of a very serious situation in the jail. The jail authorities give exactly the opposite. Now I promise you we will start an investigation at once to see who is right, you or they. If it is found you are right, we shall correct the conditions at once. If you will give up the hunger strike, we will start the investigation at once. Will you consent to treat the suffragists as political prisoners in accordance with the demands laid before you? I replied. Commissioner Gardner refused, and I told him that the hunger strike would not be abandoned, but they had by no means exhausted every possible facility for breaking down our resistance. I overheard the commissioner say to Dr. Gannon on leaving, Go ahead, take her and feed her. I was thereupon put upon a stretcher and carried into the psychopathic ward. There were two windows in the room. Dr. Gannon immediately ordered one window nailed from top to bottom. He then ordered the door leading into the hallway taken down, and an iron-barred cell door put in its place. He departed with the command to a nurse to observe her. Following this direction, all through the day, once every hour, the nurse came to observe me. All through the night, once every hour, she came in, turned on an electric light sharp in my face, and observed me. This ordeal was the most terrible torture, as it prevented my sleeping for more than a few minutes at a time, and if I did finally get to sleep, it was only to be shocked immediately into wide awakeness with the pitiless light. Dr. Hickling, the jail alienist, also came often to observe me. Commissioner Gardner and others, doubtless officials, came to peer through my barred door. One day a young intern came to take a blood test. I protested mildly, saying that it was unnecessary, and that I objected. Oh, well, said the young doctor with a sneer and a supercilious shrug. You know you're not mentally competent to decide such things. And the test was taken over my protest. It is scarcely possible to convey to you one's reaction to such an atmosphere. Here I was, surrounded by people on their way to the insane asylum. Some were waiting for their commitment papers. Others had just gotten them. And all the while, everything possible was done to attempt to make me feel that I, too, was a mental patient. At this time forcible feeding began in the district jail. Miss Paul and Miss Winslow, the first two suffragettes to undertake the hunger strike, went through the operation of forcible feeding this day and three times a day on each succeeding day until their release from prison three weeks later. The hunger strike spread immediately to other suffrage prisoners in the jail and to the workhouse as recorded in the preceding chapter. One morning, Miss Paul's story continues, the friendly face of a kindly old man standing on top of a ladder suddenly appeared at my window. He began to nail heavy boards across the window from the outside. He smiled and spoke a few kind words and told me to be of good cheer. He confided to me in a sweet and gentle way that he was in prison for drinking, that he had been in many times, but that he believed he had never seen anything so inhuman as boarding up this window and depriving a prisoner of light and air. There was only time for a few hurried moments of conversation as I lay upon my bed, watching the boards go up until his figure was completely hidden, and I heard him descending the ladder. After this window had been boarded up, no light came into the room except the top half of the other window, and almost no air. The authorities seemed determined to deprive me of air and light. Meanwhile, in those gray, long days, the mental patients in the psychopathic ward came and peered through my barred door 
At night and the early morning, all through the day, there were cries and shrieks and moans from the patients. It was terrifying. One particularly melancholy moan used to keep up hour after hour with the regularity of a heartbeat. I said to myself, Now I have to endure this. I have got to live through this somehow. I'll pretend these moans are the noise of an elevated train, beginning faintly in the distance and getting louder as it comes nearer. Such childish devices were helpful to me. The nurses could not have been more beautiful in their spirit and offered every kindness, but imagine being greeted in the morning by a kindly nurse, a new one who had just come on duty, with, I know you are not insane. The nurses explained the procedure of sending a person to the insane asylum. Two alienists examine a patient in the psychopathic ward, sign an order committing the patient to St. Elizabeth's Asylum, and there the patient is sent at the end of one week. No trial, no counsel, no protest from the outside world. This was the customary procedure. I began to think as the week wore on that this was probably their plan for me. I could not see my family or friends. Counsel was denied me. I saw no other prisoners and heard nothing of them. I could see no papers. I was entirely in the hands of alienists, prison officials, and hospital staff. I believe I have never in my life before feared anything or any human being, but I confess I was afraid of Dr. Gannon, the jail physician. I dreaded the hour of his visit. I will show you who rules this place. You think you do, but I will show you that you are wrong. Some such friendly greeting as this was frequent from Dr. Gannon on his daily round. Anything you desire you shall not have. I will show you who is on top in this institution, was his attitude. After nearly a week had passed, Dudley Field Malone finally succeeded in forcing an entrance by an appeal to court officials and made a vigorous protest against confining me in the psychopathic ward. He demanded also that the boards covering the window be taken down. This was promptly done, and again the friendly face of the old man became visible as the first board disappeared. I thought when I put this up, America would not stand for this long, he said, and began to assure me that nothing dreadful would happen. I cherish the memory of that sweet old man. The day after Mr. Malone's threat of court proceedings, the seventh day of my stay in the psychopathic ward, the attendant suddenly appeared with a stretcher. I did not know whether I was being taken to the insane asylum as threatened or back to the hospital. One never knows in prison where one is being taken. No reason is ever given for anything. It turned out to be the hospital. After another week spent by Miss Paul on hunger strike in the hospital, the administration was forced to capitulate. The doors of the jail were suddenly opened, and all suffrage prisoners were released. With extraordinary swiftness, the administration's almost incredible policy of intimidation had collapsed. Miss Paul had been given the maximum sentence of seven months, and at the end of five weeks the administration was forced to acknowledge defeat. They were in a most unenviable position. If she and her comrades had offended in such a degree as to warrant so cruel a sentence, with such base stupidity on their part in administering it, she most certainly deserved to be detained for the full sentence. The truth is, every idea of theirs had been subordinated to the one desire of stopping the picketing agitation. To this end they had exhausted all their weapons of force. From my conversation and correspondence with Dr. White, it is clear that as an alienist he did not make the slightest allegation to warrant removing Miss Paul to the psychopathic ward. On the contrary, he wrote, I felt myself in the presence of an unusually gifted personality, and she was wonderfully alert and keen, possessed of an absolute conviction of her cause. 
with industry and courage sufficient to avail herself of them all diplomatic possibilities. He praised the most admirable, coherent, logical, and forceful way in which she discussed with him the purpose of our campaign. And yet the administration put her in the psychopathic ward and threatened her with the insane asylum. An interesting incident occurred during the latter part of Miss Paul's imprisonment. Having been cut off entirely from outside communication, she was greatly surprised one night, at a late hour, to find a newspaper man admitted for an interview with her. Mr. David Lawrence, then generally accepted as the administration journalist, and one who wrote for the various newspapers throughout the country, defending the policies of the Wilson administration, was announced. It was equally well known that this correspondent's habit was to ascertain the position of the leaders on important questions, keeping intimately in touch with opinion in White House circles at the same time. Mr. Lawrence came, as he said, of his own volition, and not as an emissary from the White House. But in view of his close relation to affairs, his interview is significant as possibly reflecting an administration attitude at that point in the campaign. The conversation with Miss Paul revolved first about our fight for the right of political prisoners, Miss Paul outlining the wisdom and justice of this demand. The administration could very easily hire a comfortable house in Washington and detain you all there, said Mr. Lawrence. But don't you see that your demand to be treated as political prisoners is infinitely more difficult to grant than to give you the federal suffrage amendment? If we give you these privileges, we shall have to extend them to conscientious objectors and to all prisoners now confined for political opinions. This the administration cannot do. The political prisoners' protest, then, had actually encouraged the administration to choose the lesser of two evils, some action on behalf of the amendment. Suppose, continued Mr. Lawrence, the administration should pass the amendment through one House of Congress next session and go to the country in the 1918 elections on that record, and if sustained in it, pass it through the other House a year from now. Would you then agree to abandon picketing? Nothing short of the passage of the amendment through Congress will end our agitation, Miss Paul quietly answered for the thousandth time. Since Mr. Lawrence disavows any connection with the administration in this interview, I can only remark that events followed exactly in the order he outlined. That is, the administration attempted to satisfy the women by putting the amendment through the House and not through the Senate. It was during Miss Paul's imprisonment that the 41 women went in protest to the picket line and were sent to the workhouse, as narrated in the previous chapter. The terrorism they endured at Occoquan ran simultaneously with the attempted intimidation of Miss Paul and her group in the jail. End of section 13.